0: I want to start by reading you uh, a parable. A Japanese company and an American company decided to have a canoe race on the Missouri River. Both teams practiced long and hard to reach their peak performance before the race. On the big day, the Japanese won by a mile. The Americans, very discouraged and depressed, decided to investigate the reason for the crushing defeat. A management team made up of senior management was formed to investigate and recommend appropriate action. Their conclusion was the Japanese had eight people rowing and one person steering, while the American team had eight people steering and one person rowing. Feeling a deeper study was in order, American management hired a consulting company and paid them a large amount of money for a second opinion. They advised, of course, that too many people were steering the boat while not enough people were rowing. Not sure how to utilize that information, but wanting to prevent another loss to the Japanese, the rowing team's management structure was totally reorganized to four steering supervisors, three area steering superintendents, and one assistant superintendent steering manager. They also implemented a new performance system that would give the person rowing the boat greater incentive to work harder. (laughs) It was called the Rowing Team Quality First Program. With meetings, dinners, and free pens for the rower, there was discussion of getting new paddles, canoes, and other equipment, extra vacation days for practices and bonuses. The next year, the Japanese won by two miles. Humiliated, the American management laid off the rower for poor performance, halted development of a new canoe, sold the paddles, and canceled all capital investments for new equipment. The money saved was distributed to the senior executives as bonuses, and the next year's racing team was outsourced to India. Sadly, the end. Uh, that, that's a story from, from Forbes magazine. It's, it's a little bit old, but I, I, I read it to you to give you the idea of this is a, a parable. It's a story. It's, commit, it's meant to communicate the truth about something in order to help us see it a little bit better. In this case, what he's trying to get across is... There's a little bit of a problem with the management structure in American companies, in in his mind anyway. Stories can help us to see what we might have trouble seeing otherwise. Uh, There are examples like this in the Old Testament where you remember King David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. And so Nathan, the prophet, goes to Nathan and he tells him a story. He tells him a story about a rich man who had flocks and herds for for days and days. And then there's a poor man who had one little lamb that he treated as a pet. A traveler came to town to visit the the rich man. And instead of slaughtering one of his own lambs, he took the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it and served that for dinner. And David, as he's hearing the story, is outraged and said, that man should die. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are that man. You are that man. Stories can help us to see something that we might have a hard time grasping otherwise. Um, God used a story to help David see his own sin. But sometimes in the Old Testament, God didn't send prophets to tell stories. He sent them to actually act out stories. And it, it got kind of interesting at times. Ezekiel had to lay on his left side for 390 days. And during that time, he the meals he cooked for himself he had to cook over human excrement. Isaiah wandered the streets of Jerusalem barefoot and with no clothes on. All right, these stories were, in these guys were communicate judgment was coming to God's people, and they very vividly get across the point in the way that just saying something to somebody it, it sometimes it just flies right over our heads. Hosea uh, is an Old Testament prophet who comes not just to communicate propositional truth, but he comes to actually live out a story. His life is in an active parable that's meant to communicate a message to the people of God. It's, co- it's meant to communicate to them the, the reality of their situation and the severity of the situation that they are in, the severity of their behavior. And I think if if we pay attention to this story, it will help us to see things about God and and ourselves that we desperately need to understand as well. So let me read this for us. Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. The Word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people. And to your sisters, You have received mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that You would uh, give us help as as we deal with a, a... at times difficult and certainly graphic book of the old testament uh, i pray that you would help us to to sense and feel the reality of our sin the reality of your judgment uh, and even more lord would you give us a sense of the reality of your grace we pray in jesus name amen well if there was ever a churchy word that uh, that word's probably sin And people's reactions to the word sin range from rolling our eyes at it. Sin, that's all you church people ever want to talk about. To not taking it very seriously, W.H. Alden said, I like to sin, God likes to forgive. Really, the world is admirably arranged. This is a good thing we have going here. Um, To the word almost become meaningless for some of us, which I think looks like church people kind of us acknowledging sin in the abstract. We're all sinners, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. But not really feeling the, the weight or the gravity that that word is meant to convey. Not really feeling the weight or the gravity of our particular sins. And so the word can be just so much background noise in the church. What was the sermon about it? It was about sin. What did the pastor say about it? He said he was against it. Okay, fine. And we just go on to the next day. Hosea is a lived-out parable that's meant to help us to see and to feel the true nature of sin. And to see and to feel what sin actually lets loose in our lives. But if we come to, to see and to feel that and to see and to feel the gravity of our situation, Hosea can also give us hope. So where I want to start, the first thing I want to talk about from this passage is the true nature of sin. What's the true nature of sin? But I think a little historical background here, especially since this is the first week in the book, will actually help us here a little bit. It'll help us understand why God called Hosea to marry the person He called him to marry. About 200 years before Hosea was on the scene, the kingdom of Israel actually split into two nations. It had been one nation, but about 200 years before Hosea... It's split into a northern kingdom, which continued to be called Israel, and a southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Hosea is primarily preaching to this northern kingdom. Occasionally he says a little bit about Judah, but it's primarily to the northern kingdom. He's ministering during the last years of the northern kingdom's existence. In 722 B.C., Assyria is basically going to wipe the northern kingdom off the map. But at the beginning of Hosea's ministry... Israel, the northern kingdom, is, is, is experiencing a time of economic prosperity. They're in boom times. It's even been called the second golden age of Israel's history. And so there's this widespread economic prosperity. There were good times. But in the midst of all of these good times, the nation was actually falling apart spiritually, morally, ethically, even beginning to fall apart politically. People were power-hungry. They were greedy. They were self-indulgent. The prophet Amos speaks into this same time period. Bribes and political corruption were common. The rich lived lavishly and neglected the poor, and the poor only became poor. Hosea talks about drunkenness and armed robbery and murder and corruption. Uh, The people of God were actually religious, but they intermingled their worship of the true God with the worship of the Baals. Baal worship was a fertility religion whose worship rituals included cult prostitution at the worship sites. Basically, they thought that having sex with a cult prostitute would get the bells in the mood and they would do likewise, and the result would be fertility for the land and their crops would prosper. And so what you had was an economically prosperous nation that was spiritually degenerate, And they were about to face the wrath and judgment of God. And so God calls Hosea then to speak into this situation with words and with actions that were meant to communicate the gravity of the people's sin. And so God tells Hosea in our text, Take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, what do we know about Hosea's wife whose, whose name here is, is Gomer? And what does the ESV mean when, it, when it, which is our translation I'm reading from what does it mean when it calls her a wife of whoredom? Uh, the New International Version actually translates this phrase an adulterous wife. Uh, the New King James calls her a woman of harlotry. Uh, without boring you to death with, with all of the details commentators have several views of what Gomer, who she actually was. Uh, Some believe that she was actually chased when Hosea married her, but she became adulterous over the course of the marriage. Uh, Others believe that she was a shrine prostitute for the Baal religion. Others feel that she was an immoral woman already who had already had children out of wedlock by the time Hosea married her. Others felt that she was a commercial prostitute. I I think it's safe to say that she was certainly an immoral, promiscuous woman and quite possibly also a commercial prostitute. So then the question is, all right, um, why is God asking one of his prophets to marry this woman? Can you imagine asking your son to marry a woman like this? Or can you imagine asking your daughter to marry an immoral man? And why in the world does the ESV have to use such strong language here? Uh, whore is not a word we use in polite company you, you may be uncomfortable even with me using it in church hearing it in church but God calls this but God calls Hosea to Mary Gomer and the ESV uses this word because the people needed a vivid example and sometimes it takes a vivid example to get our attention and the ESV uses this word I think because they, they feel like it's the best translation and I think really it really does get our attention in the way that adulterous woman, it doesn't communicate the same thing. It doesn't carry the same weight. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message actually put it this way. Find a whore and marry her. Make this whore the mother of your children. And here's why. This whole country has become a whorehouse, unfaithful to me, God. Does that, does that kind of get your attention when you, when you hear it that way? God is going to use Hosea's marriage to graphically illustrate the fact that his people have been unfaithful to him. They have been whores who have been running after other gods. They've said to God, I prefer Baal over you we tend to think of sin kind of abstractly or or we think of it simply as kind of the breaking of the law. And and it is the breaking of the law and it's important to think of it that way. Or we think about it as simply breaking a religious rule. But what Hosea shows us is that sin is actually the breaking of a relationship. Or as we'll see later in the book, that it's actually a breaking of God's heart. Uh, There may be some of us who understand this imagery all too well because our spouses have been unfaithful to us or a boyfriend or girlfriend has cheated on us and we know some of the emo- emotions that come along with that and how that feels when somebody is unfaithful to us we feel shame and sadness we feel a, a justified anger uh, Beyonce in her song sorry sings uh, middle fingers up put them hands high wave it in his face tell him boy bye I ain't thinking about you. And we think, yeah, that's, she was entirely justified in feeling that way. Uh, maybe others of us have been the guilty party. And we later came to see that our actions actually caused great harm to the person that, that we sinned against. That they weren't just happening in a vacuum. Uh, adultery is, is gut-wrenching. And God weighs His people in the balance and says, you guys are spiritual adulterers. You, you are unfaithful people. That's, that's all really strong. But, but here's I think there's a, where the danger for us is. There's a danger that we look at this and say, wow, they were really bad. I, uh, I hope God never gets that upset with me. But the fact of the matter is that all sin is a form of unfaithfulness. All sin is a form of spiritual adultery. Uh, The book of James chapter 4 reads this way, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? God is our maker. He is is like our husband as we read in the call to worship. And we are like the Israelites in that we've preferred other lovers. And that's what sin really is. It's preferring other lovers to God, And we're all included in that. Uh, there's a song by Cage the Elephant called Ain't No Rest for the Wicked. And they sing about a prostitute and a robber who justified their line of work by saying this. Oh, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Money don't grow on trees. I got bills to pay. I got mouths to feed. There ain't nothing in this world for free. Oh, no, I can't slow down. I can't hold back. Though you know I wish I could. Oh, no, there ain't no rest for the wicked until we close our eyes. Good. And then in the last stanza, they turn their attention to a preacher. And this is what they say. What I saw, I almost couldn't comprehend. I saw a preacher man in cuffs. He'd taken money from the church. He'd stuffed his bank account with righteous dollar bills. But even still, I can't say much because I know we're all the same. Oh, yes, we all seek out to satisfy those thrills. We all seek out to satisfy those those thrills we all prefer other lovers and that's the true nature of sin well that's the true nature of sin the story also shows us the true harvest that sin brings it shows us the actual consequences of sin it shows that sin leads to God's judgment Uh, Gomer has three children here and commentators are kind of divided over whether the second two are actually Hosea's or not, but she has three children. The first is Jezreel. The second is Lo Ruhamah, or No Mercy. And the third is Lo Ami, which means Not My People. Uh, without getting too deep into the weeds here, Jezreel was a was a valley that had been the site of a lot of bloodshed and violence in the history of Israel. Naboth had had a a vineyard in Jezreel until he was murdered by Jezebel. Jehu then killed Joram and Jezebel and the rest of Ahab's supporters in Jezreel at God's command. But just as God had used uh, him as an instrument, Jehu as an instrument of his judgment, Jehu became apostate and God was going to judge him as well. And so Jezreel, it, it kind of become like the word Watergate is for us. Like we just add the word gate to anything that's a scandal. There's a blank gate, that gate, that gate. Jezreel had just become synonymous with bloodshed. And so when Hosea introduced his son, it's kind of like he was saying, here's my son, Bloodshed. Here's my son, Auschwitz. Here's my son, Hiroshima. And the the point that's being made is that Israel's sin was going to bring bloodshed and judgment on them. Then there's a second child, the daughter, whose name means no mercy, or it can also be translated no compassion or no not loved. Uh, While the day of judgment, we read, had not yet arrived for Judah, there would be no more mercy for Israel. And then the third child is born, not my people. You are not my people, and I'm not your God. Uh, Imagine people would see no mercy and not my people walking down the street, and they would start to whisper to each other, Hosea must not think they're actually his children You know how Gomer is. They probably aren't. He's rejected her and he's rejected them. And Hosea would respond, Don't worry about no mercy. Don't worry about not my people. Don't worry about my children. Worry about yourself. Because God has decreed that you will receive no mercy. And God has decreed that you are no longer my people. God has rejected you. Now that... He's saying that to a people who were told in Exodus 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And now they're being told, you're not my people, and I am not your God. I I will no longer be with you. I will no longer be for you. And just in a few years, Assyria was going to wipe the nation of Israel off the map. Why? 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 Actions have consequences. Uh, I heard someone say recently that they graduated from high school at 14, and then went on to college and basically wasted their college career, and that has determined the whole trajectory of their life. And they wish they could go back and do college over, but they but they can't do that now. Actions have consequences. There was a study several years ago that said girls between 17 and uh, between 12 and 17. Who watched Sex in the City and other similar shows had twice the, the rate of teen pregnancy uh, than other girls. Why? Actions have consequences. I was reading an article about the television show Breaking Bad recently, and the author said this What makes Breaking Bad one of the most moral shows in the history of television is that it shows actions have consequences, whether those actions arise from pain or greed or fear. Or panic, actions have consequences. Um, there are consequences to rejecting God and following other gods. The, the Ten Commandments, you know, they, they're not like, you know, when you go in Lowe's or Home Depot and everything in there says the state of California has determined that this causes cancer. Like, if you like everything, we should all be dead by now. But but a lot of that, and we just ignore that, right? We're like, California people are crazy. I'm, I'm buying this washer. Um, but, but a lot of times we treat the Ten Commandments like that. We're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really not that big a deal. It's, it's, it's like one of those warning labels that California puts on everything. But there are actual real consequences to disobeying God's law. Uh, and we've all done it. The Scripture tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one has done good, no, not one. And it started with our first father, Adam. And his sin has brought us down with him. Romans 5.18 One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Actions have consequences. Same chapter. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Why? Actions have consequences. Same chapter. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Why? Actions have consequences. Adam's sin had consequences. Our sins have consequences. In fact, uh, Ephesians 2 tells us that because of Adam's sin and because of our sin, we are actually dead in our trespasses and sins. Actions have consequences. The wages of sin is death. In Romans 11, Paul uses this text from Hosea to talk about us, to talk about Gentiles. And he refers to us as not my people and not my beloved. This is who we are by nature, apart from God, and dead in our sins and transgressions. Uh, During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln's 12-year-old son, Willie, died of typhoid fever. And there's a fictional book called Lincoln at the Bardo that that talks about this, and it talks about his burial and Lincoln going to the cemetery at night to visit his dead son and the cemetery that he goes to is actually filled with ghosts and one of the ghosts keeps talking about how he's really just sick and that he's going to get well he's going to be able to go and consummate his marriage and there's another ghost that's there who's so sorry that he violently injured his wrist but he knows that somebody soon is going to come and give him help and that he's going to be okay and these ghosts continue to, to linger in the graveyard. They're stuck there because they can't believe that they're actually dead. And so they can never move on. They can't own up to the fact that they're actually dead. One of the hardest but most important things that we can ever do is own up to the fact that we're dead. Like It doesn't, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't, it doesn't get the juices flowing. Um, But but to own up to the fact that we're actually spiritually dead. Because until we own up to our spiritual deadness, we're actually going to be trapped in it. And we're never going to be able to move on from it. We'll live our lives trying to convince ourselves that we're actually alive and that everything is actually okay. But in our gut, we know there's something wrong, but we can never actually own up to it. And so we never get the medicine that we actually need for our disease. We're stuck there. Sin has consequences. Well, that's the, the true nature of sin. The true harvest sin brings. Uh, finally, we're going to close with the hope for sinners in all of this. According to the book of Ephesians, the hope for sinners is that God brings dead people back to life. Hosea, at the very end of this, puts it this way. you got All these words of judgment. And then he says, verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy hosea paints this picture of gospel hope here at the end of chapter one by saying that god in spite of this judgment intends to restore his people and renew his covenant he's going to keep his promises to abraham to make him a great nation he's going to gather his people under one king and he's going to bring them back to the land and give them new names Those who were not my people are now called children of the living God. Now, these promises were partially fulfilled in the Old Testament as a remnant of God's people returned from exile. But there's a much greater fulfillment in the New Testament. The the text is fulfilled in the New Testament as one man lived obediently where Adam had lived disobediently. Where one man without sin received no mercy and shed his own blood and was treated as not my son. One man, as you two sang a really long time ago, came in the, in the name of love. For, for God so loved the world, right? We know the verse, for God so loved the world. What was that world really like? God so loved the world that had left him and run off after other lovers. Because that's what we've all done. But God so loved that world that He sent His one and only Son. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you know that passage I just referenced from Romans 9 where Paul quotes Hosea. Here's how he actually uses it. It's actually good news. He refers to us and says, Those who are not My people I will call My people. And her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And he said this about Gentiles who have come to believe the gospel promises. That you are not my people. You are without God and without hope. But now you are my people. And you will receive mercy. See, there's, there's hope in Hosea. There is hope for you and I that even though we were dead in our sins and even though we were under God's judgment for those sins and even though we were not His people there is hope found as we repent as we talked about in the Confession of Faith as we repent of our wondering eyes and wondering hearts and embrace the forgiveness that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. But some of us know that there's something wrong with the way we've been living our lives and we're trying really hard to fix that we're trying different things to make that right we're trying to to make atonement for what we've done in the past Uh, david letterman some of you know hosted uh, late night television shows for for 33 years Uh, and he really his stuff really formed the basis of a lot of modern comedy uh, and it shaped late night talk shows as we know it today but Letterman was accused uh, at times of creating a very hostile work environment. He admitted to having affairs with multiple members of his staff. Uh, staff members say that he was he was plagued by insecurity. He always hated the fact that he didn't get to replace Johnny Carson when Johnny Carson repl- uh, retired, and he always hated the fact that Jay Leno always beat him in the in the ratings on the Tonight Show. One night, one of his staffers asked him how he was doing during the break, and the band was really loud, and so he just wrote on a piece of paper, I hate myself. And then she, you know, she tried to encourage him, and he just underlined it twice. I, I hate myself. Letterman retired, I guess, two or three years ago now, but he's actually come back. Some of you may have seen this. He has a series of one-hour sit-down interviews on Netflix with people like George uh, George Clooney and Barack Obama and Tina Fey and, and people like this. And they just talk for an hour. It's, it's not really stand-up comedy. And one writer referred to it as, as David Letterman's redemption quest. His redemption quest. And he writes, Letterman is profoundly aware that his life passed by while he was fixated on the success of a television show. And Letterman interviews George Clooney and admires how Clooney has used his fame to, to help people. And he talks with Jay-Z and he talks about his own infidelity. He talks with Howard Stern about the progress that he's made, that they've both made through therapy. And he tries to explain to Tina Fey why they didn't hire many women writers on the show. And you can tell he's trying to get her forgiveness for that. He's looking for redemption. He's got a whole show and he's trying to find redemption and some of us are too. We don't, we don't do it by getting a show on Netflix, but we, we find different ways to do it. Some of us are trying to make up for mistakes we made with our kids, make up for mistakes we made in our marriage, make up for mistakes we made on social media, make up for mistakes we made last weekend. We're working hard to redeem ourselves, and the Bible points us away from ourselves and away from our work and points us to the work of Jesus. Others of us are in that boat. We, we, are, we are painfully aware of our lostness and our brokenness. We, we feel like we've received no compassion. We feel like we're not loved. And we can't imagine that we ever would be. Uh, in the book, Redeeming Love, which Susan made me read, it, it looks like a Christian romance novel. I, I should have brought it with me. But, but I'm reading it because it's an allegory of the story of, of Hosea, Right? So there's a prostitute named Angel who is purchased out of prostitution by a man whose name is Michael Hosea. And at one point in the story, he takes her to church and she can't get out of there fast enough. she's in there like five minutes and she goes running out of the back of the church. And the reason she runs is because she's convinced that the church is filled with hypocrites. And she's convinced that because of her past, she doesn't belong there and she'll never belong there. If you feel like that, if you feel like that, please understand, we really may act like hypocrites at times because we just will. But this church is filled with sinners and and we're not here because we think we're better than anybody. We're here because we're sick and we need a Savior. And we'd love for you to meet that Savior, as well. I'll close with this, and maybe it's and maybe it's, it's it's a little bit too easy given the sermon. Uh, but there's a there's a song by Derek Webb called "Wedding Dress," uh, and in the song he sings this. Well, he he pictures himself clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and running down the aisle to meet Jesus to to marry Jesus, and and the the song goes this way I am a whore I do confess but I put you on like a wedding dress and I run down the aisle to you and that's the invitation of the gospel the invitation of the gospel this morning for you is to believe the hard truth about yourself but to also believe the good news about Jesus and to run to him this morning uh, we're going to have an opportunity during the Lord's Supper. Philip and Cindy Swasko are going to be standing uh, at the back. Uh, if, if you want to receive Jesus, if you've never done that, or if there's just something this morning like you just need somebody to talk to you or need to pray about something, uh, they're going to be back in the back and would love for you during communion to go up uh, and pray with them. If you need some privacy, you can go back into the rooms back behind. But I wanted to make you aware of that opportunity this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we would make that our prayer, uh, that we would believe the hard truth about ourselves and that we would also believe the good news about Jesus, that we are sinners, that we run after other lovers, but Jesus has pursued us and come after us to rescue us and bring us home. We thank you for this. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. Would you help us to embrace it? in faith and repentance. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Can be seated. Uh, we've sung the story of the gospel, confessed the gospel. Uh, we've heard the gospel proclaimed in sermon. Now we get to, to see it and, and to taste it in the Lord's Supper. Uh, in the Lord's Supper, we see actually the reality of our sin. That our sin is no small thing, that it is so great that someone actually had to die so that we could be forgiven. But in the Lord's Supper, we also see the reality of God's grace. That God loved us so much that He sent His Son to actually die and to actually take condemnation for us so that we would not be eternally condemned. So the invitation for you this morning uh, is to come and to rejoice in what Jesus has done. If you do not yet know Christ, then I encourage you, uh, there's some, some prayers of belief even in the sermon, If that, I mean in the bulletin if that's where you are. If you're not sure where you are, there's a prayer for those searching for truth. Uh, but if you know Christ, even if you have stumbled badly this week, badly last night, but you're confessing that sin and resting in Jesus, then come and receive from Him and be strengthened by Him.